In football, anything can happen on the field, and your level of confidence determines how you handle it. And the same goes for moving. It's why Penske Truck Rental equips you with as much confidence as possible to handle whatever comes your way. They do this with newer, cleaner, safer trucks. It's Penske Truck Rental helping you move with confidence. Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. And welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. I am Chip Patterson. That is Barton Simmons. Happy Tuesday to you and yours. We've got Brady Quinn on the show today. We'll be asking him, of course, about Notre Dame. He's also gotten a chance to see uh, some of the best teams in the country up close and in person in the booth. And uh, Barton Simmons, how are we feeling right now as we uh, we stare down a, uh, a pretty eventful week seven? We're feeling good. Feeling good. Always a good show when you got Brady Quinn on. I like I like Brady's takes. He's always got a good strong opinion. I like people with strong opinions. Um, and uh, and yeah, man, it's, we've we've already got some news this week. News popping. News uh, popping. Oklahoma has decided that it will let Mike Stoops go after uh, the Red River rivalry game. Uh, a historic. Points allowed for the Sooners in that 100-year-old rivalry. And so Stoops is out, and he will be replaced in the interim by Ruffin McNeil, who, uh, of course, has a relationship with Lincoln Riley from Texas Tech and ECU. So, Barton, I ask you, um, when you have the change of defensive coordinator in the middle of the season – you know, we already had Wake Forest have it earlier, and I think that you have even let some comments fly here on the podcast, <laughs> throwing out some like, "Hey, just because you, just because you fired the coach, doesn't mean the players are different." So let's let's start with like, is there any on-field expectation for change for Oklahoma? I will say one difference between the Wake Forest situation and the Oklahoma situation is. There was a very clear succession plan, not permanently, but in a, from an interim basis with the Oklahoma deal. Um, you know, Ruffin McNeil takes over as the interim defensive coordinator. And he's Bob, been the associate head coach, I think, already. Right. For he, whatever he that, that means. I mean, it's obvious that this is someone who is uh, who, who gets included in all of the meetings and all of the decisions. Right. And so Bob Diaco, who is an analyst, you know, takes his a role as a what is he linebackers coach now? I swore um, Bob Diaco was at Nebraska. Was he at Nebraska last year? He was their D coordinator last year. Yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, you're right. That's the that is the cleanest looking man in America. Bob he Diaco. Just, he looks like he looks like he <laughs> just is like taking a shower by the hour and just always tucked in, hair hair done right. Man, that guy's always always looking sharp. But either way. You got sharp dressed Bob Diaco on the staff, um, and and I think the bigger deal is you got Ruffin McNeil taking over as defensive coordinator. And I just think we kind of said it after the game and, and the Sunday recap show. Just you know that what how how many more t- games like this are we going to see um, before they got to make a move? And I, I just think this was Lincoln Riley's. I, I don't know if it's his. Probably his first real big boy head coach decision, mm. right? Like this is—it's not easy. He, you know, Mike Stoops is the brother to Bob Stoops. Bob Stoops is a guy that's still very close to the program that gave Lincoln the opportunity. You know, he's Mike Stoops is by all accounts a very beloved coach by his players, but it just hadn't hadn't gotten it done. I mean, that was a mirror image to a lot of games we've seen from Oklahoma in the past you know those guys those you know they they just got out physical up front and they just couldn't stop the run and so I think Lincoln Riley understands that they've I mean because here's what's interesting now they've got as they got arguably the best mind in college football and off offensively in Lincoln Riley you make that you can make a pretty good case of that 
they've got a team that's recruiting at a, le- at a high level. They've got a team that looks like a perennial playoff team. You know, you go, if you go get one of the best defensive coordinators in the game, you got a chance to – I mean, this is, this is where, you, you know, you, you sort of set the stage for a real run at the Alabamas and Ohio State to the world. I mean, Jimbo Fisher, Mike Elko. Um, Ohio State has that just ridiculous, you know, Ryan Day and Grinch and Shiano and all those. Alabama, whatever. It's got Nick Saban. You know, you got Kirby Smart over. I mean, you have to, you can't get by with just an inherited defensive coordinator anymore if you're going to play at that level where the stakes are so high and the margin for error is that thin. Is there something about Oklahoma, though? Because I. This, this transition has made me go back to remembering when Oklahoma fans weren't all that impressed or all that happy with a certain defensive coordinator named Brent Venables, who has proceeded in his place at Clemson to become one of the most respected, uh, renowned assistant coaches in all of college football. Okay, is, is that uh, – this is an honest question. Was, was that a situation where Oklahoma fans were not ha- – happy with Venables because he he was a co-defensive coordinator right with Stoops right right so when I I could be wrong in remembering this this way I thought that was a deal where Venables wanted his own show and was and was never it was always going to be him and the head coach's brother was that so I, I don't I'm not saying am I remembering that wrong I don't think you're remembering that wrong I I just remember that the the fanfare of around Venable's hire at Clemson was in a in a spot where it was mixed. How about that? Okay. I mean, we weren't so, talking because we aren't talking about Oklahoma defenses that had dominated at the point when he was hired in 2012. Like those 2010, 2011. We're not talking about like the best, some of the like the kind of defenses that were going to be put up near the top of college football. Yeah, but are we, you know, are we talking about? The, there's a difference between was was Brent Venables not appreciated? I, I don't think. No, my question I, I, is, I, I, was it an Oklahoma thing? I don't want to. Re- I, I don't. I, I, I don't want to relitigate uh, where Brent Venables stood. I I am asking if it is tied into. Oklahoma on a deep level where even if there are changes on the defensive staff, where even if you're going to go out and you're going to continue to recruit uh, game breaking type players that it, you know, like there's just going to be something about that Oklahoma team, especially when it's paired with an air raid where it is going to be tough. Like, is this just an Oklahoma thing? I mean, I think that's, that's a fair question in terms of offensive styling it when you look at this next hire is is you know whoever you hire what are your expectations going to be because there there is and I think that what you said it at is red zone because wasn't that the most damning statistic from this season that opponents had gotten in the red zone against Oklahoma 21 times and 21 times they scored touchdowns that is unacceptable even if you are the defense of a spread team you cannot be giving up touchdowns at that rate when opponents get in the red zone. You, that is when you stand up. That is when a, a defense of a spread team needs to be able to prove and say, no, we're a really good unit. It's by getting stops, field goals, and turnovers in those spots. Right. But also, and, and then I think also when you look around college football, you're starting to find, look, we can have it both ways. We can have a great defense and an explosive offense. You know, you look at what Tony Gibson is doing at West Virginia. You, you look at I mean, look, I know Texas is a different version of Texas, but Todd Orlando is, is, has paired a really good defense at Houston, a really good defense at Texas with you know, a, 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 a relatively wide-open offense. You look at what Alex Grinch did at, at Washington State we talked about. Um, I mean, even, even I think Notre Dame is a physical brand of football offensively, but it's still – I mean – they're still very explosive and putting together really good defenses under Clark Lee and Mike Elko before him. Um, I just think there's, it's 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 no longer this sort of um, mutually exclusive idea to have an explosive offense and have a defense that gets the job done, and 
and and so I think now you look around and you look at, around the college football and you say, all right, who who can I hire at Oklahoma that is one of the brightest minds, one of the best young coaches, one of the most established coaches? Maybe you just go big boy someone else and say, we're going to take your, your coach and pay him $2 million, um, kind of like a Jimbo Fisher move. Uh, but I think you have to look at it from somewhat from the from the scope of, look, like, I think, what's a good, what's an example? Um, I don't know, Michigan State. You know, I'm, I'm not comfortable, or I'll say, you know, Minnesota of old, you know, where Jay Savelle, who went to Wake Forest, came from. He goes from a Minnesota team that kind of protects their defense, plays ball control, and and plays really good defense and sort of caters their program around that, to, to Dave Clawson, who was trying to run 80, 90 plays a game if he could. And and so that that's you need to find someone that's proven that they can play complement a spread offense and still bring not only like I think it was more than anything is able to deliver the mentality and demeanor that a defense has to have that has to practice against a spread day in day out but can still maintain an edge and physicality to their product and that's that's the challenge that we've seen a lot of teams have Brent Pry had to take up that challenge at Penn State when Joe Moore had arrived and and has really done a good job of figuring that out um, you know that's th- these are this is the new challenge, but everybody, there's a lot of teams that have figured out how to make it work. Who has, do you think that like Auburn's probably the best example of being able to make it work? Well, I don't, the thing is like, I don't even, you can't even really call Auburn's offense explosive. That's the thing. Mm. Like I don't even, Auburn's, Auburn's offense is big picture, big picture. But like last, so no, cause I would say, I, I would argue that Auburn's defense is masking uh like I mean they haven't found it a balance right am I miss am I misunderstanding like what what has Auburn shown really explosive fast paced offense with a really physical uh, like defense I, I don't know that the two have coexisted yet and I do and I also think last year Auburn is a, you don't think that the, you don't think last year was the case how explosive was that offense what was it maybe am I am I but but. Regardless, I think the argument for for Auburn is that is still a downhill, like it's it's that offense is catered around the down downhill run game, and so when those guys are practicing every day, they're still going up against a a downhill a physical, line, yeah, a yeah, physical, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So so I think that's you know the the challenge is different than what Auburn has 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 you know has or hasn't accomplished. Yeah, as a and ball touches the ground less. You know, even though you're going no huddle or up tempo, clock's still running. I I understand what you're saying. I I don't know. I don't know if anyone's done it better than Alex Grinch. Oh, how about that? I should ask you that. Who do you think that Oklahoma can or should get? Uh, I mean, that's probably was that where you were going to go? Call. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's the first call. I think you you know can you get Tony Gibson? He's a West Virginia native. Can you lure him away? Um, do you? Do you go for? I mean, look, a, a guy like Clark Lee at Notre Dame has done a really good job in year one. Do you do you sort of put your, you know, do you find the guy that you think is the next superstar? Because here's what I here's what I hate when coach what coaches do, they go and hire the big name. Like I don't know who that would be this year. Um, I mean, the the guy that's been around. I mean, John Chavis I think is like an example of this. He's just like John Chavis is a great defensive coach, a proven defensive coach, but. You know, I, I don't know that John Savage still has the same fastball he had seven years ago. So, so what's you know where, where like where, who is Lincoln Riley going to be comfortable with in terms of a guy that is either just the best coach in the game that I'm going to go and just hire and say name your price, you're coming with me, we're going to win national titles, or B, you go and say, I, I mean that's what I respected the Elko hire for Notre Dame is Elko was not the sexy name at that point. And Brian Kelly went and got him from Wake Forest because he is, you know, it was a, it was clear what he was able to do at Wake Forest. They would win the games three to nothing, six to three, go to overtime against Virginia Tech, zero zero. Like they were getting no help from their offense. They were playing good defense. Find that guy that is, he could be at a group of five school. You know, like it, all the best defensive minds in college football aren't coaching at the biggest name schools. And so be an expert here, Lincoln Riley, and find that guy. Though I, I do think Chip, like. You said it though. I mean, to me, the first call that makes sense is Alex Grinch. Yeah, because Shiano ain't going anywhere. 
And so you just offer Alex Grinch the opportunity that Brent Venables, to bring this all full, full circle, was offered by Clemson. Come yeah. run the show. Yeah. Come install it. Come get it going. And uh, and boy, that would uh, that would be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I've seen some of the most talented athletes fail because they lacked one essential ingredient, confidence. Without it, everything else goes to waste. It'll make or break any athlete. And the same is true with life off the field too, especially when it comes to moving. It's why Penske Truck Rental equips its customers with as much confidence as possible to make their move successful. They do this by offering newer, cleaner trucks that are among the safest on the road. Every truck undergoes a multi-point inspection and you'll be able to get unlimited miles on one-way rentals. So whether you're moving across the country or just across town, Penske Truck Rental helps you move with confidence. And now that brings us to our Penske Truck Rental team on the move. And this week's team on the move is the West Virginia Mountaineers. We just mentioned Tony Gibson and that defense. Uh, we'll be talking about them here in just a second with Brady Quinn in terms of you know what is coming up down the line, Barton. But this weekend, they're going to be in Ames, Iowa, Moving on to go face the Cyclones. We've got this West Virginia team now up to number six in the polls. This is some of the highest ranking that we have seen from West Virginia since the Pat White, Steve Slayton, Rich Rod era Mountaineers competing for BCS Championship Mountaineers. They are six-point favorites on the road. It's going to be a nighttime game. This feels like a big-time upset spot. How much confidence do you have that West Virginia is going to be able to survive this first big test of the season? Ames is a tough spot, man. I know. Those Penske moving trucks, they better have uh... – yeah, they they, they make you know luck. slash tires or <laughs> you know, like that, that place that place gets hairy at night now, uh, and so I, I this is a tricky spot. And Brady will you know Brady will touch on it here when we talk to him. But this is like the beginning of one of the tougher back ends of a schedule as you're going to find. And I mean they got Iowa State this week, they got Baylor at home, and then they go to Texas. They got a really good TCU team coming to their place. They're going to Oklahoma State, and then they got uh, obviously a really good Oklahoma team coming to their place. And and when you look at the back half of the schedule, you don't really think about Iowa State. But Iowa State just beat Oklahoma State last week. Brock Purdy, true freshman quarterback, put up some pretty silly numbers. <laughs> uh, they are the type of team that's going to be better in the second half of the season than the first half of the season. Like, this just – this just feels like a a very dangerous spot for West Virginia heading on the road after a you know a sleepy performance against Kansas. Right, and so that was going to be my next question: Is uh, Will Greer has six interceptions on the season? I think three of them came against the Jayhawks. A couple of them in the red zone, uh, if not in the end zone. He also had two picks earlier this year against Kansas State. Uh, it feels like we've got a Will Greer. Uh, a bigger body of work, and as more data points have come in, there have been as, er, enough errors to have some concern in terms of where where Greer, uh, as a player with his production right now, is going to rank among the best quarterbacks in the country. Do you see? Do you see that turning around? Do you see that improving at all from what we've seen here, at least maybe in the last three games or so? Well, let's put it like this. I mean, this. Would you do you think and I, what's I mean Iowa State's like two and three or something? I mean, yeah. They're, they're, you know the record isn't pretty, but I would I would argue and tell me if you agree or not. I would, I would argue this is the best team that West Virginia has played. I I will say Texas Tech is better than Iowa State. All right, and well, I mean we'll find out later in yeah. the year on that. But yeah, thank but, goodness, yeah because of the Big Twelve, <laughs> everybody plays everybody, so we'll see. But, but I mean, at the you know, at the very least, you could probably argue his best defense. Sure. And um, and I mean, you could you know maybe Texas Tech is that too. I don't know. But my point is, this could be the beginning of like, you know, Brady will talk about when we talk to him, sort of about what you know what has Tua Tagovailoa done against the competition he's played. You know, in a way, uh, Will Greer hadn't met with a lot of resistance yet either, and has still kind of stumbled a couple times. So this could be the first step to him being. You know, this is the first 
introduction to the Heisman race for him. I mean, he was in the he was introduced to the race preseason, so maybe that's the wrong phrasing. But you know, this is his pre, you know prelude preamble to a Heisman run. Uh, I think he's got to get rolling this week, um, and and I think West I think Iowa State brings the kind of resistance that that you need to to have a you know a, an impressive showing. That's what they need. They are the West Virginia Mountaineers, and they are this week's team on the move, brought to you by Penske Truck Rental. Remember, Penske Truck Rentals offers newer, cleaner trucks that are among the safest on the road. Thanks to those multi-point inspections, you get unlimited miles on one-way rentals. The unexpected is bound to happen, but with Penske, you'll have the confidence that you need to handle it. Penske Truck Rental, helping you move with confidence. All right, you ready to get Brady on here? Let's do it. And now it's our pleasure to welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast the esteemed Brady Quinn. Brady, uh, you can see him on CBS Sports HQ. You can see him on Fox Sports. You can listen to him on Fox Sports Radio. He is, uh, Brady, we were just mentioning, I think that, you know, uh, much love and respect to everyone in the industry, but... The uh, the you Joe Davis Bruce Feldman front of the podcast Bruce Feldman that's that's a pretty solid team right there. How's your season been from like a work life perspective? It, it's been incredible. You know, this is the um, second season that all three of us have been together. Joe Davis and I have worked together for a while. Um, but you know, one of the things that we kind of realized early on last year with Bruce is just how dialed in he is to so many of the things that are going on behind the scenes in college football, especially from the coaching standpoint. So we, we do our best to tap into that. Um, but obviously we always want to be respectful of the games um, that are taking place in front of us and making sure we're, we're doing a good job of telling that story. But it, it's been such a pleasure working with Joe. I mean, he's a true professional. Uh, I've actually missed him the past couple of weeks because he's, he's had duties for baseball. He calls some playoff baseball games for Fox as well. Uh, but I will get him back this week for our call for USC at Colorado, uh, which will be an interesting battle in the Pac-12 South. Um, but you know, to say the least, and we, we've had some great games so far this year and seen a lot of good football. Yeah, you've gotten uh, in the last month. So the, I'm I'm all, a little bit envious of your position. You know, you get the uh, the the production meetings, you get the interviews, you get to talk to the coaches. You've got an unparalleled access and view. In the last month, you've gotten to see Ohio State, Washington, and Texas. I mean, these are three conference championship contenders. Uh, either anywhere in there, was there a spot where you think that your expectations of a team going in were not matched by the feeling you had coming out of the game? Yeah, you know, I would say USC. I thought USC-Stanford um, was going to be more of a competitive game, and, and it wasn't a high-scoring game. Uh, but I was just surprised by the way Stanford really manhandled them up front on both sides of the ball. I just, you know, I, look, I, I played in an era where you could make the case USC during that time when I was at Notre Dame uh, had, a, had a run of, of one of the best ever in college football. And, and that team was talked about as one of the greatest of all time. And, you know, I know it was about Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart and, and Lindell White and some of the other, you know, players. But, you know, really to me, what made them so difficult was the guys up front. Like, as much as they had the skilled players getting drafted in the first round, they also had, a, had a, you know, some offensive linemen, defensive linemen getting drafted as well, too. And those guys were some big-time playmakers. I, you just don't see that from them quite as much uh, now. And that's been kind of surprising. Uh, Washington... I think going into it, I was curious to see where they would be because they've kind of had an up-and-down year losing to Auburn week one. And then coming out of that game, I kind of thought to myself, all right, like maybe this is going to be the more dominant team in the Pac-12 and they've got things under control. Um, so, so better feelings coming out of that matchup. And Ohio State last week watching them versus Indiana and kind of struggling, uh, I got the sense that you know, this defense, one, is not the same without Nick Bosa. I think mm. he is such a big game changer that not having them ultimately hurts because it does allow quarterbacks to hold on to the football a little bit longer and I think sometimes even extend plays. But also the, their cornerback play is okay. It, it's not what it, what it has been. And I think in particular the safeties. That's the position where, you know, Jordan Fuller's played all right. He's more of an in-the-box guy. And we didn't see Isaiah prior to the second half. And when, and when he did come into play – his presence was immediately felt, but that, you know, that position in particular, especially the free safety, those guys have to step up their level of play and play better. And then linebackers have always kind of been hitting this. Um, Luke Harrison's, I think, has played well, but they're still looking to, 
figure out whether it's going to be Baron Browning or Tuff Borland uh, or, or, or Pete Warner on the outside or who's going to step up because Dante Booker has been a little banged up. He was a, a starter for them last year, but has had a number of injuries. So I, I wasn't as, I guess, leaving that game last week, uh, I wasn't as big on the Ohio State defense as I, as I was coming in. Sure. So that, a lot of good stuff to, to unpack there. I, I want to go back to the USC deal and dig in there a little more. Can you diagnose this for, for USC? Like, what what's the problem here? Can we – you mentioned up front, but they've recruited well enough to where they should have guys. Like how, how much blame can we place on, on Clay Helton here? Or – I guess I, I, I guess I'm getting at that from a, an angle of do the fans actually have reason to be unsettled about things right now, or, or do you see this going to be one of these USC teams that rips off, you know, eight straight or whatever it is, six straight to, to close the year? I think they've got the potential to rip off a bunch. I mean, obviously the exception again, bias aside, being Notre Dame just because how good they look right now. Um, maybe Cal because Cal looks a lot better, and then they got to play in Salt Lake in a couple weeks. Like those are the three games I think they have to worry about. Aside from that, though, I mean, it's kind of smooth sailing. And and as I look at the matchup this week, like if they basically can stop LaVisca Chenault, I mean, Colorado doesn't have as much as much of an offense, right? He's he's literally half of their offense when you look at his production. <laughs> so uh, I think Clancy Pendergast will be okay there. To address the offensive line question, you know, look, they've run through a number of different O-line coaches. You know, Neil, Neil Calloway is the guy there now. I don't want to put it completely on um, Clay Helton, uh, I, th- I think it's an issue that a lot of schools are dealing with. But that being said, I mean, I look at Ohio State's offensive line and I'm like, these guys are mammoth. I mean, they're all six foot five plus, two hundred or excuse me, three hundred and twenty pounds plus a-, a man. I mean, it is unbelievable to see their size, uh, and-, and I don't really see that quite as much when I see USC. And I don't know if that's just a product of, of where they're at, what they're recruiting, but um, I mean, there's there's two guys in the line right now that aren't even 300, you know, and, and this is USC. Like, this is a school that I feel like recruits nationally and can get, you know, those top guys wherever they may be. And, and you can't sit here and tell me that um, they can't get guys of that size because Ohio State went and got a, you know, a Juco transfer, um, you know, at, at left guard, Malcolm Pigeon. So if they're, if Ohio State's doing that, you should be able to do that at USC. So it's it's been a bit surprising. And, and so I think it's a combination of probably a little bit recruiting, even though, you know, we're giving these guys certain rankings. You know, maybe they're not being developed as much. Maybe the transition and offensive line coach is hurting it. Um, you know, it, it's hard to put your finger on it. Look, if, if USC knew, obviously they would address it by now. Um, staying in the Pac-12, since we got you over here right now, big game this weekend, Oregon-Washington. I'm, I'm starting to talk myself into uh, Oregon winning this game. Are, are, do you think they've got that in them? What's been your impression of Mario Cristobal early on in this tenure? And and is because Washington has sort of been uninspiring, I guess, at times. I mean, they've been taking care of business, but but not exactly the sexiest sort of outputs through the first half. Hey, appreciate season. that consistency, Barton. You got to appreciate that consistency. <laughs> Talk, so 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 correct no, me. Help me figure this out here. Yeah, I, I think the thing with Washington is they don't have um, the Vita Veas, the Elijah Qualls, the, um, you know, those, those sorts of players that you look at and are really splash players. You know, when I, when I look at some of their secondary and look at their cornerback play and all that, um, they're not as tall, they're not as long as they used to be. There's no Kevin King, Sidney Jones there. Um, you look at the back end, like Taylor Rapp is an absolute stud. There's no doubt about it. Um, probably a bit bigger version of Buda Baker in my opinion. Um, but you know, besides that, there's, there's not as many guys. I mean, Ben Burke Kervin's a tackling machine, but he's like 220 pounds. Uh-huh. Um, so if you get a body on him and he gets his hands inside, he kind of gets eaten up. Uh, Greg Gaines is the, the anchor of their defense, but like I said, it, it's not quite as imposing or physically imposing as what we've seen in the past, uh, from Washington. So I think that's kind of part, part of it. Um, you look at their wide receiver group. I mean, Dante Pettis and John Ross are gone. And Aaron Fuller has been the guy to step up. Uh, I think they thought they would have been at a better place with Chico McClatcher by now, but that hasn't been the case. Ty Jones is more of their big body target, but he's still coming along. Um, I just I feel like the, the skill positions around um, Jake Browning besides Miles Gaskin are kind of still developing, uh, maybe with the exception of like a, a Drew Sample who's been there for a while. but 
you know, they're not, they're not quite as explosive as they once were on offense. I think they're going through a little bit of a transition to it, Bush Hamden. And, and look, the, the game we called a couple of weeks ago against BYU, BYU used it in allow too many big plays, but Washington had their way with them, running the football and then down the field and some of the passing game too. So, uh, you know, maybe that was what they needed to kind of spark their offense and all of a sudden be, become this team that we, we kind of saw go to the college football playoff two years ago in 2016. Uh, I, I just I kind of look at them right now and feel like, you know, they haven't played their best football, and, and that could be a dangerous thing, uh, especially as they take on Oregon, who, you know, when, when I look at Oregon, I think this battle, you know, as much as it's about speed and playing out in space and getting tackles on the edge, I, I just think Washington's going to try to dominate the line of scrimmage up front, and they're going to try to put everything on Justin Herbert, and I'm sure he's, um, you know, ready for, ready for that challenge and ready for that task. He's very capable. Uh, I just think that it, it's a tough tough secondary to go up against where you're going to have to make extremely accurate throws. You're going to have to be able to throw guys open at times and you're going to have to hurt them with, with your legs and running. And I don't know that they're going to let them, let them do that. So I think it's going to be a close game, but I definitely give the edge to Washington right now, at least from what I've seen. But I do think Mario Cristobal is changing the, um, I don't want to say a stereotype, but I think a lot of people, especially after watching Ohio state, just physically manhandle Oregon in, in the national championship game in 2014, I don't know that the reputation's recovered. Uh, and I think people look at them as a, you know, place that has, you know, speed and, and maybe are, are more finesse. Um, and I think Mario Cristobal is trying to change that where he wants it to, to be about the physicality uh, combined with that speed, especially up front for them. Were you surprised at all that uh, Texas was able to get out and not only get out in the front, but maintain a lead when Kyler Murray and Oklahoma made their charge in the Red River game? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I was, I don't want to say shocked, but I was very surprised. Yeah. Um, you know, we called, we called Texas TCU and going into that game, one of the things that stood out to me was, you know, Sam Ellinger is going to have to run the football in order for them to have a chance. Cause I, I think TCU played one of the worst halves of football in the second half of that game that I had seen at least up to that point. And, um, you know, besides little Jordan Humphrey, besides Colin Johnson, there weren't too many guys mixing in. And the defense has been stingy. It's doing what it did last year. Um, but, you know, t- to me, I was just like, yeah, I don't think they're going to have a chance of winning in a shootout. And they got out to a lead, and they were able to keep that lead, and they were able to keep moving the ball down the field. And maybe that's more of an indictment on Oklahoma and their defense, um, and, and obviously a reason why maybe they moved on from Mike Stoops. But I, I was very surprised by that. kind of opened my eyes um, to Texas maybe being able to hang in there with some of the more high-powered offenses. Right, because now they've got the head-to-head win against Oklahoma. They've got the head-to-head win against TCU, as you mentioned. In the Big 12, when we're just taking the top two teams from the standings, no division play like that, that to me looks like we're looking at Texas probably in one of those two spots in the conference championship game, and now West Virginia and Oklahoma and maybe probably to a lesser extent TCU are all staring at each other, and there's only one spot left for the three of them. Yeah, and then that's where it's going to get fun to watch, especially as we get into uh, the month of November. I mean, that's a huge month month when you look at those teams and their round-robin round style of play in the Big 12. They all got to play one another, and, and there's going to be a, a lot of teams kind of knocking each other off. I, I think West Virginia's uh, schedule the rest of the way is what's, what's going to be their downfall. I mean, they I can't get over how they've reloaded on defense and the job that Dana has done in kind of recruiting to replace certain spots. and and how that's really come around for them. And obviously, Will Greer has been incredibly productive, but I just think their schedule is too tough uh, going down the stretch. I just I don't think they're going to be able to survive it. I still have a lot of faith in Oklahoma, uh, being able to fix things over the course of the bye in the next week and then in a couple weeks coming out because uh, they've got too much talent. I think you look at them too when you see them on the field. It's not an Adonis effect, but they, they, don't, they don't look the same as other Big 12 teams, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean they, they've got all the pieces, and they look like they've got all the pieces – um, so I think if they can get some things together from a scheme standpoint and they all of a sudden can, can start playing better on the, uh, the defensive side of the ball, uh, I think they'll be okay. I think we're going to see another rematch of the Red River Showdown. Brady, this summer uh, I, I went up and spent a day at your alma mater, the first time I've ever been up at, uh, in South Bend. Pretty cool little, little, little program you guys have built up there. Not too bad. Uh, I, hung around, <laughs> I hung around for a day. And, like, I can't say that I left thinking, like, this is going to be a, a national title contending team. This is going to be a college ball playoff. And not that I didn't think it would be good, uh, but I just – I don't know that I got a vibe around the program that this was, like, the year where they make a playoff run. 
So I got I got sort of two questions for you. One is, did you see this coming? Where it looks like they do, in fact, have kind of a a pretty clear opportunity to make the playoffs. And I think maybe the second question is, look, this is sort of two teams here. The first three games, the second three games, is that is it as simple as just Ian Book, or are we seeing something different take place right now? So, uh, what, what was your what was your preseason expectations, and then how has your perspective on Notre Dame evolved over the course of this first six game run? Yeah, preseason. I think I was looking at their schedule and what my preconceived notions were of, of the teams they're going to play. I was really thinking to myself, okay, if they beat Michigan, that's probably a springboard for whoever wins that game. But yeah. in the case of Notre Dame, uh, to really have a shot at w- and make it to the college football playoff because they're going to have the strength of schedule to do it. Um, and I do think Michigan's a good football team. I still think that. Um, so that was kind of my preconceived notion. But honestly, I thought, you know, if they dropped a couple games, ended up being a, a, having a 10-win season, like that would be a great year. Right. for what they lost last year to the draft, especially on, off, on the offensive line. Now, when I went up there and visited like you did, I came away with a different impression. Like, my impression was this. They reminded me of, you know, nowadays we get so many one-and-dones in college basketball under March Madness. And nowadays it's, like, kind of refreshing when you see a team that you actually know the players when they're playing in, like, the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember them from the year before. You know, that, <laughs> that's, like, that's a junior and senior now. Like, they played really well together as a team. That's what this Notre Dame defense is. Like, they've got a lot of experience and a lot of upperclassmen and a lot of guys who are now playing together. And I think that is the thing that stands out the most to me on their team was, like, they, they don't really have anyone break their leverage. They're, they're always very sound with their assignment. I think keeping Clark Lee was huge for the continuity of the defense and the players and just so they understood the expectations. Um, so, so I came away after visiting thinking, okay, like, their defense is going to be salty. And then when I, was, when I was watching their offensive line, I watched those guys work out, I, I, I came away thinking, like, they're going to be okay up front. Like, I don't have any concerns because they've recruited well and then they developed well yeah. uh, under Harry stand. And I think Jeff Cohen will be able to do it. So I, I, I thought they could protect. I thought they could block. The thing I didn't think they had was speed. And I don't necessarily know that they have a ton of that um, at, at a lot of the skill positions on offense. But I think they've got enough, and I think what they have is size. And then so it comes down to, can someone operate Chip Long's system well? And Ian Book's been the biggest surprise, and and to me is the catalyst for why you look at this team being one thing in the beginning of the season with Brandon Wimbush and now something entirely different. Like, he breathes so much confidence into everyone else, and I think he allows the defense to play more aggressive and and guys to continue to work even when plays break down because he's going to find them and he's going to make a play. So so Ian Book, I mean – what about Ian Book then? I mean, did is <laughs> what? What do we miss? Like, why was he even sitting on the bench? Like, Brandon Wimbush, was it just sort of a hope within that building that that arm talent was going to eventually um, be you know, you know shine through, and the rest of him was going to catch up to what the the physical abilities are? You know, why why did it take three games? And 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 does the Ian Book transformation surprise you either? I mean, I didn't know Ian Book was this good. Yeah, so this is this is funny. I'll try to make a long story short. I remember when Ian Book committed. I happened to always kind of keep tabs on Notre Dame. And so I watched some of his film on Huddle, and I came away really impressed with his feet. Like, you don't see too many quarterbacks at the high school level now who have really good feet, can keep a rhythm, can keep a good base, and could play from under center, play in shotgun, whatever the case is. Like, I remember watching his film thinking, man, this kid's like, he's got a chance just because, like, right away he's got good feet and a good platform and pretty good mechanics, like not the strongest arm, but he seems athletic enough and he seems like he, he can make all the throws. So every time over the past few years when I've gone back, I've asked about Ian Book. And, you know, the coaching staff was always enamored with Malik Zaire, Deshaun Kaiser, and then it was Brandon Wimbush because all of those guys were bigger. They were better athletes. They had a stronger arm. They all had higher upside, if you will. But then there was this kid who was kind of sitting – and, and, and watching and learning and growing and just doing everything they asked of him and was, was doing things good enough. And so he kind of reminds me of a more athletic Tommy Reese, but probably with more ability, which is ironic because Tommy's now their quarterback coach. Um, but, but that's what he is. And, and, he, and he's unflappable. He doesn't seem to really care about um, the pressure. He doesn't seem to care about the moment. Um, and and, I, and I, it's, it's weird because over the past few years, I've kind of seen that every time I've gone up there. He just kind of would go in, do his thing, 
And when he got his reps, he got his reps, and he executed and did his job. And I think now this team out around him is good enough where if he does that, it's good enough. And it's definitely good enough for the coaching staff now, too, because what they were failing to have with Deshaun Kaiser in his last year there and Brandon Wimbush, you know, this year was just a guy who could go and, and throw the football where it needed to be, like, at the right spot and, and on time. And that'd be a good decision maker. And then from that, if you can make a few plays, that's good too. But I just think, you know, there's this good sandwich shop up the street from where I live. And I can go to any other fancy restaurant and get a great meal and probably pay a little extra. And maybe it's a, it's a better date night spot. But I'll tell you this much, I never leave from that sandwich shop ever disappointed. And I think that's kind of how Ian Book has been. Like as, as he may not always wow you, but he's never going to leave you disappointed. Yo, so if that sandwich shop listens to the podcast, holler at Brady. There's a big time sponsorship opportunity here. <laughs> What's your order at that sandwich shop? Um, I usually get a chicken pesto sandwich. They got great bread and everything's always fresh. Everything's always organic, all that stuff. So they got this chicken pesto sandwich that my, my wife actually introduced me to. So that's what I usually get now. There you go. Brady Quinn, he, he drops it all. Uh, all right, who's playing the quarterback position on the same level as Tua? Is there anyone? Yeah, I mean, look, I said it on national television. There's a lot of pushback from a lot of the Alabama uh, fans. But, look, I think Dwayne Haskins, to me, is the leader in the clubhouse for the Heisman. Now, Tua might be 1B if Dwayne is 1A. But here's the thing I'd say is if we're all about making a resume or making a case for a player, I think you can probably make a better case for for the criteria that usually leads to the Heisman Trophy right now, okay? It, usually it's stats-based, okay, we know that, but that's secondary to your team being in contention for the college football playoff now. If I'm not mistaken, both Ohio State and Alabama are in contention for the college football playoff, are they not? They are. So if they are, then we go to the stats. And if we look at the stats, as impressive as Tua has been, I would say this, who have they played? Like, in all honesty, who have they played and actually been challenged by that's even decent? Have they played TCU at a neutral site, you know, really on the road, considering where that game was? You know, have they really been challenged by anyone like Penn State on the road? No. And so my whole thing is, if you want to break down and look at, you know, his completion percentage and everything else, that, that's all well and fine. But I haven't seen Tua challenged. And if you want to count last year's national championship game as being challenged, that's fine. But that's not for this year's Heisman Trophy winner. So okay. you know, I think looking at what Dwayne's done in the second half versus TCU with the deficit in the fourth quarter down 12 driving down the field uh, to bring their team back and the fact that he's leading the, the, the country right now in touchdown passes. And by the way, he's probably going to get to the, the half, you know, half a hundred this year based on their schedule and what they have the rest of the way. You know, I think you can make a case for him right now. I'm not saying that's not going to change once Tua is challenged or once they play tougher opponents like Auburn, like LSU down a stretch, I'm just saying right now, you can probably make a better case for him than you can Tua. So uh, I'll, I'll take the bait and take up the, the flag of the Alabama fan. Uh, <laughs> now, is this a, are you saying like basically you just need to wait and see what he does again those big moments? Because we may have a year where Alabama just isn't challenged. And, and it's, hard, it's, it's hard to imagine – to a play any better like really it's hard for me to visualize what playing better would look like than what he's done I mean his stats are ridiculous and and I'd also say this and tell me if you disagree or agree but I I was at the Penn State game um and and that game to me was Haskins was a little bit rattled by the crowd and in the second half when they really started making that run it was about quick screens out to the receivers, run after catch stuff. Like, it was really the receivers that won the game. So I, I would argue that Tua, even in blowouts, has been the most impressive just because I don't know – I just don't know what a better version of what he's done would look like. Right, and, and look, like I said, I, I think he's played extremely well. If, if Haskins is 1A, he's 1B. And, and every time I see a highlight, you know what I see from Tua Tango Velo and the Alabama Crimson Tide? He said a wide receiver first. running with, <laughs> yeah. you know, with a five-yard cushion. No doubt. Right? Yeah. So yeah. As, much as, as much as you want to sit there and say, like, well, there's some – like the, the pass to K.J. Hall, no doubt. It was, it was a wide receiver screen. But, yeah. you know, he still made the play. And then even before that, the, the pass to Benjamin Victor, it was a deep drop off a play-action pass. He had to step up. He had to elude a rush. 
and then still throw back across his body while taking a hit to deliver that football to Benjamin Victor. So as much as it was a great play by Victor afterwards, it was still a 20-yard you know, throw that was catchable enough under duress and after getting popped in the face. And here's the thing is, you know, going back and after talking with Ryan Day about, you know, some of the struggles he had earlier in that game, some of it was more protection-based, and it was a little bit of, you know, even the coaches admitted to this, that it was so loud there that I think they tried to make some different protection checks, and they couldn't. And so then it became more of a, okay, we can't communicate like we want to to change protections, so now we're just going to have to throw hot. So a lot of times, some of the shorter passes you're talking about were an adjustment. They just said, we're going to give up trying to change stuff. Let's just throw hot. We'll take what we get and move on. And I think the fact that he fought back in that game showed a lot of resiliency. Where, again, we haven't seen that from Tua yet. So I'm not saying he can't do it or not, that he's not going to do it. I just want to see it before we go in and anoint him as the Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah. What, what about is, is would you put Justin Herbert out of Oregon in that mix? Have you seen enough of him to have a, a strong opinion one way or the other? I've seen enough in some. I mean, look, if we're going to start talking about some of the most valuable players, right, like Herbert's in the conversation, Benny Snell's probably in the conversation, um, LaVisca Chanel. I mean, Colorado's undefeated right now. I, I don't know how much longer that will last, but, you know, he's everything to that team. Like, you know, I just don't think that always equates with the Heisman Trophy winner. And, and the thing with Herbert is he might be the number one overall pick in next year's draft. Um, but, you know, right now, given the fact that they've already dropped the game, to Stanford and I think they're going to lose, you know, probably again, I, it's, it's going to be hard for him to be considered for the award uh, just because of that, because they're not going to be in that in, in the college football playoff contention. Well, it's probably about this weekend too, right? Like if he can, if he can engineer an upset over Washington, then that probably alters the the narrative on, on sort of his chances. Yeah. No, that, and that'd be, that'd be huge. Right. And that's where, yeah. again, like when we're looking at this, if you right now were like, all right, what's Dwayne Haskins Heisman moment. He kind of has one. Right. Like he kind of has that play that helped get them within a touchdown and drive them back down the field. You know, Tua has got some splash plays and some fun plays to watch. And again, he's played unbelievable this year. Um, I just think if you, if you look at who it's been against, that kind of hurts him a little bit. Um, and, and so that's that's kind of like more of my concern with it is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you have to have those Heisman moments. Tua hasn't been presented with that challenge yet. I do think they'll be challenged, by the way. I think LSU is good. Auburn's good. They're not walking away with easy wins in either of those games, in my opinion, uh, nor, nor the conference championship game, especially if it's going to be Georgia. So uh, I, as good as this team has been, I just think the, the competition that played has been pretty darn darn bad too. For Ohio State, it looks like in all likelihood their last test before what could be a college football playoff appearance would be uh, the Michigan game. And then if Wisconsin does, in fact, end up coming up out of the division, a rematch with the Badgers in the Big Ten championship game. Wisconsin and Michigan are playing this weekend. Brady, what are you looking for in terms of hoping to learn something about either one of these teams, either as a potential Big Ten champion in themselves or even in the context of what they could present as a challenge to the Buckeyes? Well, look, I think both defenses are pretty salty, but uh, to me, so I'll kind of talk about each offense and each quarterback because, you know, I think Michigan is going to keep this a low scoring game. I will be shocked if Jonathan Taylor can, can continue to keep rushing for what it's 160 yards a game right now. Yes. Yeah, I, I just don't think that's going to happen this week. I think they're going to put pressure on Alex Hornibrook. Uh, I, I would be shocked if he doesn't turn the football over at least once in this matchup uh, because I, I do feel like Don Brown and their secondary are going to give him some fits. Uh, and I also don't feel like the Wisconsin wide receivers uh, and tight ends will be able to separate. So I think that's going to be a, a long, hard day for the Wisconsin offense. To me, this can be a statement game for Michigan. I think everyone will forget about what happened week one. And if they win this game, especially if they win it, um, the way I think they can if Shea Patterson starts to take that, that big step to becoming um, one of the better passers in the Big Ten. Like, I, I think all of a sudden people are going to start saying, okay, like that Michigan-Ohio State game is going to be a, a huge game in the, in the context of, you know, just the college football playoff picture. Like, maybe, maybe Notre Dame's pretty good, and maybe if Michigan did beat Ohio State all of a sudden, like, maybe they're very worthy of, of being a one-loss Big Ten champion of getting into the college football playoff. So, um, I'm, I'm more looking to see what Shea Patterson will do in the passing game and just Michigan in, in general in the passing game. Like, we all know they can run the football. Uh, I think their offensive line, which really struggled at the beginning of the year, has, has gotten better as the year has gone on. 
Um, but but they're going to be challenged, right? I mean, yeah. Wisconsin's got a pretty darn good defensive front. So I'm just looking to see if Michigan can take that next big step offensively. And maybe I'm downplaying um, Wisconsin right now, but I, I just I, I don't see it happening versus that Michigan defense. So Brady, am I hearing you in that? Like, you do you believe in this Michigan? Because Michigan offensively, I mean, yeah, they're rolling up these big these these teams that they're more athletic than, but. Are you a believer that Shea Patterson and and that this offense is sort of going to be evolved enough in the big games, you know, like this one, like Penn State, like Ohio State, to where they they can win those? I mean, do, how, how much belief do you have in, in this teaming of, of Harbaugh and his coaching staff and Shea Patterson? Well, look, I've got faith in them. I think I just – like we all saw what Shea did at Ole Miss, right? I mean, he's got that in him somewhere. Where, where we can see him play, where he's a more of a prolific passer. And, and I just think eventually that's going to come out. And maybe it's this week versus Wisconsin. Maybe it's not until uh, the Ohio State game. I, I, I don't know. I just think he's got an in him, and at some point they're going to be forced to kind of just let him do his thing and, and spit, out, spit around the football. Um, I, I think they're, they're going to have to evolve from what they were week one versus Notre Dame, where we saw like just this kind of traditional – Michigan offense, a lot of under center and said, just put him back in shotgun, let him roll, let him do his thing. Uh, and kind of less is more and let him play. Yeah. Uh, Cause he's, he's definitely got the ability to, and he's got it in him. He is Brady Quinn. You can follow him on Twitter at third underscore goal. You can see him on CBS sports HQ. You can see him on Fox sports. He will be there for USC Colorado this weekend. Hear him on Fox sports radio. Brady, you're the man. Thank you so much for your time. Dude, it was a pleasure. Always love talking to all of you guys. Thanks so much for having me on.